Hello everybody and welcome back to another delightful edition of the Serious Feather podcast. I'm your ever so glamorous host and co-producer at Serious Feather, Jack Clark. Like previously mentioned, we'll be primarily referencing our currently in production micro-budget feature, Nobody Loves You and You Don't Deserve to Exist. However, in today's edition, we aim to discuss more in depth the originally composed soundtrack to the film and more prominently to chat with today's guest, the hurdy-gurdy man himself, formerly the keyboardist for 70s progressive rock band Druid, and the eclectic mind behind iconic children's television show themes such as the Teletubbies and Rosie and Jim. I'd like to welcome our brilliant composer, Andrew McCrory-Shand. Hello, Ander. Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you today, Ander? Yeah, um, a bit cold, but uh, it's gone from like <laughs> beautiful spring to suddenly... Shoo. How are you finding this online space so far, doing stuff like this on Zoom? Is it still weird for you? Have you done a lot of it, or...? Uh, well, I've spent a year doing it, and like everybody else, more or less. But because I work from home, and before Zoom, it was FaceTime and all that sort of stuff. It sort of feels normal hmm. to me, receiving instructions online. I do my work, and I send it off. And they sort of say yes or no, and I repair it or, or not. I've done productions, production company based in Australia. Hmm. And I've also done productions where it's based in LA. And it's like, yeah, that's so easy. Well, it's brilliant we can still find ways to to collaborate even even with like vast distances i find it i find mm. it almost magical in a way but i just want to bring it back to you a bit i want to say <laughs> what first got you into music yeah well i come from a pretty musical family and um so christmases and high days and holidays were already spent with everybody could play and if they didn't play they sang so you know it was just all around my dad was a pianist so I started learning piano at the age of five and music was just always mm. there. So I don't think I, I really noticed it. And I haven't trained to do anything more so than music, especially starting at the age of five. So um, when, I, when it came time for me to find a job, job, my parents were alarmed that I wanted to be a musician. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, well, I've been doing this for 12 years now. Um, what else did you think I was going to be doing? <laughs> what was your... First venture in, into music? What was your first big job? At the age of 14, um, somebody introduced me to Hot Rats by Frank Zappa, which mm. was an album mm. around about 69. And uh, that just bowled me over. I thought, wow, and just dived straight into progressive rock. And then from then on, that was it. And I knew what I wanted to do. Almost probably, if I heard Hot Rats on the Saturday, I think I was forming a band on the Monday <laughs> as I went back into school. Um, it, it grabbed me, so it was a real baptism of fire, and I just loved it. And that was a real iconic moment for me. So since we got on the topic of progressive rock, um, <laughs> I, I know you were in a band called Druid in the in the mm. 70s, and I've actually, I, I listened to the Twas Sun um the, oh, yeah. the album i had i had listened to it the other day it reminded me a bit of like a lost yes album almost um i just want to like ask because you were the keyboardist um that's your right. own your own little rick wakeman i should say but in, yeah, um, in his shoes <laughs> <laughs> but um how did you end up joining what's the story of druid all i wanted to do was be in a band and i just went for loads and loads of auditions from where i used to live in warwick go to an audition and uh, play well but they'd say, where do you live? And I said, Warwick. And the half of them hadn't even heard of where Warwick was. So it's very London-centric, mm. this whole thing. Um, and I thought, I, I've just got to go move down there. Mm. So I moved down there, got a job in uh, HMV Record Shop, um, which was great. I was surrounded by music then. And within about a week, I'd met Druid. And uh, they were looking for a keyboard player. And I'd sort of just joined, really. Got all my gear from 
where I used to live, in my parents' house. Um, and then moved in. They had a house in a place called Berkhamstead, which is just north of London. It was it was quite it was quite big at the time because I saw there was this show. It's well before my time, of course, but Old Grey Whistle Test. Old Grey Whistle Test. Yeah, yeah with yeah. Uh, Bob Harris. I actually saw the performance on YouTube with you hammering it out on the keyboard. <laughs> Um, what was that time like, just just for progressive rock? Just when you were coming in, I think you, you came in after Yes. You were possibly inspired oh, yeah. by Yes. Yeah. If you look at the charts, in just the UK charts, the singles charts in the early 70s were such a huge, wide range of music. Hmm. Everything was covered. It was a great time and everyone seemed to be open to all this stuff. That probably attracted me to prog rock as well. Just the, the freedom to be able to experiment and go places and just do whatever felt good but then punk came along which yeah i loved the ethos of punk and we used to go along to a lot of gigs because we had a pa and we used to hire our pa out to these punk bands so i saw a lot of early punk bands in like 76 77 and uh, that seemed to suddenly sort of change everything and everyone sort of said oh you've got to be a punk band or you're never going to exist uh, yeah, but it was a really interesting time. It was full of energy. It was lovely. It was great. I was meant to add, um, the Old Grey Whistle Test that you watched was the first programme of the Old Grey Whistle Test from Manchester. Oxford really? Road Studios, BBC Oxford Road. So we were the first band. Um, there was another band, the Sadistic Mika Band, who were a Japanese band. Mm. But we, yeah, we, we um, opened the Oxford Road Studios with regard to um, the Old Grey Whistle Test. It was the first show from there. Bob Harris, didn't he produce the Druids when, when they were around? Cause he produced the first Druid album. First Druid um, album. Yeah, and he was great. He was a real mine of information. His, his, I mean, his record collection even then was huge, but he was totally into American music and uh, introduced us to a whole host of artists and musicians um, that... We hadn't really, certainly I hadn't had the sort of um, connection with. So it, it was a great learning process, A, in the recording studio, but B, also with Bob and his eclectic tastes. Why do you think you found, because I find myself, I find personal expression through photography and through film. Why do you think you found the, the expression through this particular genre of music? Because it was free. It was it, the freedom in there to, to just explore stuff the range of music that we could produce that i could produce as a as a musician and writer was vast if you were introverted or slightly lost in mm. the general world this place would op uh, welcome you with open arms this progressive rock thing and you find a lot of people discussing lyrics and all that sort of thing um so it, it was quite a a great place to be for like-minded people, I think, fans and musicians alike. But I just want to ask you, as as a bit of a, a bit, bit of a side, more on the Druids. Um, Brett tells me that you're you're both massive fans of the Wicker Man. Um, yeah. That was out in the '73, um, right. and I guess Druids they have quite a Celtic paganist mythology to them. Did any of this inform? like your worldview in any way at this time in your life uh, not druids specifically but that sort of approach to um, sp the spiritual mm. world and magic and fantasy uh, the yeah totally and i think that go probably goes for most 
um, sort of musicians in that genre at that time. There was a lot of um, looking at the world of nature and there was a hamlet in uh, Snowdonia called Druid. So wherever we, whenever we were playing nearby, like Bangor or even actually Chester or Manchester, we'd always go there. It's something about it just because it was called Druid. I don't know. But um, we def- definitely had a, a, there was a spiritual plane to what we were doing. And that I think we had as people as well as as a band. Yeah. Did, would you say, I guess, that sort of spiritualism and that whole sort of realm, I guess, magic? magic realm to, to give it to give it a term would you say that influences a lot of your work now or since that are you where would you define yourself as a very spiritual person i think so with a small s uh, in that i'm open to i haven't changed mm. at all i still sort of think there's more to it than us mm. and um it's that uh, all our energy comes from our us being spiritual beings mm. as part of this whole great big universe and I think music is ideal for me because it offers me a, a sort of place where I can play with that and work mm-hmm. with it. I think I find words too limiting as a writer, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly I'm a visual person, which is odd for a musician. But um, I have to say that the first time I ever had to put music to picture that f- because everything I'd written had been done to a sort of internal movie anyway. So I was conjuring up pictures in my mind of what I was writing. But um, the first thing I had to do where I put music to picture, it was like a jigsaw puzzle hmm. pieces coming together. And I suddenly thought, this is it. This is, for, this is me. Because I just found it so rewarding. And I'd sort of been training for that, if you like, by all that sort of imaging that I've been doing, the internal imaging to the pieces of music that I had been writing, that um, it was great. And it has still, it's still great. I still love putting music to picture more than I enjoy writing from scratch, something which has no image to it, that I have to make an image or use a prompt as an image. So yeah, I just find it, it's a gorgeous thing to do. I love it. Do you have any like key pieces of, I guess, advice, creative advice for them if they wanted to say go in, out into the world and form their own band? That they should just do it. I mean, it's easy for me to talk from this end, <laughs> but mm. yeah, I, I think it goes for any any other thing, not only music but film and any any of the arts. You just got to chase it, and it's not it's it. Somebody isn't going to come up to you and say, "Here you are, here's twenty quid." Can you do this? Can you write this piece of music for me? It's not. It's just not going to happen. Um, and you just have to put yourself there, but put yourself at the front of it. You know, don't sort of wait for these things to happen because they never will. Yeah, no, I think that's a brilliant piece of advice, really, because I've found being my age that I find arts is, in, in a way, a shape of self-discovery as much mm. as it is creating art. You, you, you should, I think you should be doing it for yourself opposed to other people. We've mentioned pop a little bit before, and it said that from from during into the eighties, you actually did work with a couple of mainstream pop acts, um, Leo Sayer, Billy Ocean. What mm. what what was your professional role around that time? What did you learn about music? I guess commercially. Well, it's interesting because having left Druid, um, I sort of became a session musician, 
playing, guesting with other bands, mm. playing in the recording studio, writing with other people, as I did with Leo Thayer. Um, so I just sort of spread my wings to try and find out what it was I wanted to do. And I, I enjoyed all of it. I really loved it. But what really opened my eyes, quite literally, was um, I got a job. I was signed to EMI as an artist in Druid. We were on EMI's record label and as songwriters as well. And so I was still signed to EMI, which is then I started um, working with other people, collaborating in writing songs, mm. which were not the songs necessarily that I'd been playing in Druid, but were broader spectrum. And then got a job um, working for EMI, working for the library music, production music division, which um, is where the teaming up of visuals and music comes in because uh, they make library music that can be used off the shelf for TV productions, films and things like that. So I was a producer for EMI and uh, we, I made probably about 30 or 40 library albums with various artists um, and writers for which is explicitly for use on TV hmm. and film. And that that's when I sort of realised, wow, this is what I'd like to do. Free of Druid and the other progressive rock bands that I worked with, um, I was suddenly able to take in all this other sorts of music to the extent that I'm, I'm my tastes are really eclectic now. Hmm. I just love all sorts of good music. Do you have any... Um... Because it was a it's an interesting time in the way you've progressed and with the acts you worked. Do you have any like interesting sort of stories that stand out to during your time working as as a producer when you were doing the library tracks? Um, what was really good was just being almost resident at Abbey Road Studios. Mm. It was great. I just loved the idea of going in there. My great uncle, great great uncle, great something, <laughs> um, is Jimmy Shand, who was a really quite a name accordion player and writer for for EMI coincidentally mm. and he was one of their biggest record sellers before the Beatles came along mm. and he did his first session that he ever did outside of uh, sort of just having mics in a, a room um, at Abbey Road Studios in 1933 and like every time I went through the doors I just thought this is great here I am several generations later doing exactly the same thing and quite honestly the sort of people you'd meet in the canteen were just phenomenal mm. players and musicians orchestras you know you name it um they'd be there and it's such it still is a great buzz to go there i don't go there half as much as i did but um yeah fantastic place because curiously you went on from this to go right for children's television what 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 was the what was the jump there? I was working with uh, on an album as an EMI the EMI producer with a guy called Paddy Kingsland, who's uh, a member of the BBC's Radiophonic Workshop, and also um, he he'd written music to uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy mm. and other other sort of TV shows, and him and I were working on an album. I was producing it, and he got a call from the um, person who Anne Wood the person who runs Ragdoll and he had worked for her in the past and she wanted something really quickly to replace some music on an animation and um, he said I can't 
but uh, someone sitting here who can, I think. <laughs> so pass the phone over to me, and um, in the end, I did the animation. She liked it, and she said that was, you know, I did it for nothing. Hmm. So, so this is another thing about working for nothing. Um, so I did that, and she said I like it. Maybe we can talk about on the next project I want to work on, which happened to be Rosie and Jim. So it was a case of being in the right place at the right time, but also being open to doing something which was out of my normal comfort zone, but also which there was no financial reward for it. All that happened was it, it just made my career sort of expand, which is lovely. Do you, really. do you like the work that you've personally done for children's television and did you like being, because I think I've read a couple of articles where you are predominantly referred to as the children's television composer. Do you like that label? A, I'm very proud of them as, as pieces of music and works that work with the uh, pictures. So I've done a good job from there, that point of view in my mind. But um, predominantly that I just found working on children's TV and give, being given the freedom I had as well because mm -hmm. basically they just said do what you feel and if we don't like it we'll tell you mm -hmm. so i just did what i feel which well now coincidentally that takes us back to the prog rock world where mm -hmm. i could do as i wanted until someone said otherwise and the children's tv thing is that and i don't think there's a lot of music out there that that enables you just to be your five-year-old inner self and mm -hmm. i think that's really kept me quite sort of open and uh, I think people people have walked in when I've been working on children's TV shows and um, said I'm just sitting there with a grin on my face hmm. Some, you know hmm. uh, and I, I really enjoy it and I think it it has kept me creatively open and young yeah um, so when I it's interesting because when I come to do something now that's not for children's TV necessarily. Um, I still engage that five-year-old. Hmm. I think because I was, uh, I think many people would be. It's good. It's good that you're proud of it because I think most people, uh, especially parents, would be because you did the Teletubbies theme as well, um, which I think millions mm. of people would would just be able to recognise uh, just by that. Uh oh, yeah. um, we we hooked up with you through Kirsty McGee. And uh, yeah. when when we first we we did some digging and we and we first learned he's done the Teletubbies, we just looked at each other and was like the the the, uh -oh. the, the, the tele, the, yeah literally <laughs> oh it's like the Teletubbies he wants to work on this and Dave our lead Dave in particular he he, he recounted a tale to me and Brett and he said when he when he heard because we told him we said well this is the composer he's done the Teletubbies and he said really really he's done the Teletubbies we went yeah yeah and he went. The amount of times I put my son in front of the television just to just to calm him down with with the with the Teletubbies. I mean, I I not to make you feel old, but I was one of the toddlers also that remembers the Teletubbies. Um, everybody recognizes the the song as the sun rises mm. or over the hills and stuff. Um, so I think yeah. a lot of people would would be very inclined to I guess thank you um, as well <laughs> as everybody who works on the Teletubbies personally, really. Uh, yeah, still very proud. I, I was proud of doing it then. And I'm, I'm proud when I listen back to it now. So it's it's a good thing. But the uh, the one problem is you were talking about earlier, you, you hinted at it, I think, the stereotyping, mm, yeah. which actors get mm. um, a lot. And anyone working in the arts professionally, 
they're going to get that stereotyping in that they're seen as the result of all the shows they've worked on mm. or all the work mm. they've done. And as you are aware, I did an awful lot before mm. I did this. Yes. This is just another a facet of what I do. Mm. Um, it's the one that everyone knows. And I have approached people in order to work on their adult shows as, or shows or dramas or horror, whatever films. And it, it's, it's been good being able to say I worked on Teletubbies because that gets me in <laughs> in the door, yeah. if you like. But the first thing they say is, well, I don't want it to sound like the Teletubbies. Mm, yes. And I sort of think, well, that, please let me sort of give me a go. <laughs> let me <laughs> show you that it's not going to sound like Teletubbies because I have more awareness than that. How do you look back on your success with like the franchise of the Teletubbies? Because it's shut off Teletubbies. Um, I mean, it's been the single, uh-oh, uh, it's been played in clubs and cribs alike. It mm. sold over two million copies. I think it was nominated, if I'm correct, for an Ivor Novello Award. Yeah, it was. Um, and yeah. it's challenged it challenged the Spice Girls in '97 for the Christmas <laughs> number one. How do you look back on all that? It was great. It was um, a weird glimpse into the sort of the the world of media celebrity. Hmm. So many people I know that are on TV. Their faces are on TV. People have a preformed idea of what they are before they meet them and I think it's quite good being a backroom person which I, I like being um, but that certainly that that sort of brush with the media and celebrity then it was crazy at that time the lead up to Christmas we'd started off making an ordinary TV show for children and it mushroomed into this enormous great big cult that over summer th th there can't have been much to write about in the newspapers um <laughs> that suddenly it just um, sort of catapulted the whole show into everyone's minds. And I think there can't be many people in the world who haven't heard of Teletubbies. Mm. It sort of entered the national, international, global consciousness, mm. which is an amazing feat, really. Mm. Um, it's good. I think, I think part of it's, I guess, global accessibility, and which extends to its popularity. I think it depends on a lot of the dialogue. Um, it's been shaped by pre-linguistic codes because the dialogue in Teletubbies, uh, watching it back, watching it as a child, you kind of understand it, but watching it back now, you go, what, mm. what's this? This is like gibberish because it is, I guess, what a young child would, 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 would sound like, would, would think. Yeah. You know, it's, I guess it's quite avant-garde and I guess similar to that whole primitive art, uh, like mm. naturally pure movement, I suppose. Yeah, the whole people involved, everyone involved, put a lot of work into um, both the dialogue such as it is but even their names are as a result the smallest one Poe is the one that new babies would find easiest to say and then La La then Dipsy and then Tinky Winky so there's a lot of um, understanding how children's speech develops and this is global it's not mm. just mm. um in english but also from the music um i started off with da 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 mm. and again universally the the way mothers um link with their children is to do mama 
Hmm. So it's those two notes are universally recognised as the way that children get into speech. So they learn music first, they, they learn the tones, and then they tack speech onto those. So the first thing we ever learn is a da-da, hmm. that interval, and it's everywhere, everywhere does it. So to tap into that, it's brilliant, I love it. It's great, it's the, you know, the science behind it. Totally planned, and um, the fact that it, it's able to be watched in such a relaxed way, hmm is a testament to the way they've made the show I and mean, there's hard work went into it before and hard work went into it as they were making it but it just looks very relaxed and again to the the first view is it crazy yeah <laughs> drug fueled and then everything psychedelic and all those things well i think that's, that's all the, true uh, i think that's why you can watch it as a child and an adult um yeah. hopefully yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hopefully. how much is your involvement now with children's TV, is it still quite big? Is it still quite a big part of your work? Or Yeah, interestingly, as I was doing parts of uh, this film, the music for this mm. film, I was also alternating with doing a TV show made by Ragdoll, the same people, called Bot. Mm. And that's on now, on CBeebies. Mm. And so I was doing that simultaneously, which I've finished Bot now, and it's out, as I say. But um, lovely to be involved in children's TV. You've been working for our film as composer. It's a micro-budget feature. Uh, Nobody loves you and you don't deserve to exist. And the themes it explores, existential trauma, you know, caused by real events, the sudden death of a loved one. What was what was your... What I want to know is the original brief via our, you know, mutual acquaintance that was sent out, it was to compose some of the film's original soundtrack from that sheet music that was on the third panel of Bosch's painting, The Garden mm. of Earthly Delights. What was your original reaction to it and what really drew you to work, work on the project from there? Well, that alone is a reason for working on it in itself because then, as soon as I got that email that said that, I went immediately to the to find that sheet music which someone has um, notated, hmm. and I played the the theme. Not only that, but I think everyone involved in the film has been working on it for four or five years. Brett longer possibly, hmm. and so they have an image of it. It exists now for them, hmm. and I think it's interesting because when I did Jack's second monologue where he's in 1992 Hmm. I got a sense that 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 was where that was based in 1992 but for me all of the music is based in 1490 Hmm. which is when the painting was was finished around that, that sort of decade and so the whole approach is medieval yes and Brett was instrumental in saying, forget now, forget 1992. I just want this to be a medieval tale, which is where our Wicker Man sort of yeah. association comes in. Because, again, their music was not necessarily medieval, but it was certainly primitive and weird. Mm. And um, so in this, although I've used technology to create it, the whole thrust of the music is that it's medieval Hmm. and when when i see the characters in in a modern setting or jack in the 1992 setting uh, i just see them 
Brett said, imagine he's walking around a medieval village. Mm. And that's what I say. And I think that ability to, to be open to that five-year-old mm. looking at that and saying, this is a medieval village. He's, he is a medieval person. Mm. And so it's a, it's a gift to be able to, to someone say, write the music to this, but I want it like this. Um, yeah. And so I've, yeah, I've thoroughly enjoyed doing it and I'm still enjoying doing it. Um, and it's great. It's a, as I said, it's, it's a gift on a plate really. Yeah. From a musical point of view for me. And I've loved doing it. And I think Brett knew what he wanted mm. when he did the, the, told me about the medieval thing. But I think he got me at the first few notes of that sheep, the music that's printed on mm. the guy's ass. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, and I think we're enough, we think similarly enough for that to sort of just set me off. And apart from a few sort of, dodgy bits where I've employed too many synths or something like that. Mm. I think we're, we're in agreement with the way this is going. And I, I love the direction of the music um, for me. And as I say, I think it's just because I see the whole process as a medieval play. Mm. Well, it is, it is very, I guess, akin in, in inspiration, like the morality plays, mm. uh, yeah. medieval morality plays. And interestingly, if, in, in the painting, the Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights, there's three pains and there's three errors of the character. So you can you, you, you can see the film in that painting. That's why it's so prevalent. Mm. Um, so I think it, it is interesting that you were able to, 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 to find that, to find that, I guess, that, that, that neutral brain wave with Brett, which is everyone else is going to see this as, oh, it's, it's a modern film um in in modern times whereas both both of you can just see it with a new pair of eyes you go well no mm. it's actually it's medieval uh, it, it stripped down all the all what you see there it's medieval imagine he's wearing a tracksuit no he's in a jester costume towards mm. um which i think is a really for, for me looking at it, it's a really interesting collaboration because you're both making this intellectual fairy tale together yeah with with the way we've collaborated, interestingly, like you're only you're only just speaking and seeing my face from the production, and it's, right. and it's been it's been seven months. How do you find this remote working with Brett giving you the stuff via email? Because so far it's only been email. Um, do you think it's beneficial yeah. not to know each other personally for, for the way we've we've been working so far? Um, I don't know. From what I understand about Brett, and from listening to the other podcasts, that he's somebody who who is is living this film. And so to sit and talk to him would be to just get deeper into the film and the, the the story behind it and the process and everything else like that. But I think just a few things he's said, and it's almost like he knew this would whet someone's appetite. Mm. The whole you know, medieval thing with the notes on it and actually the tune itself. And I know he's, he'd heard a few versions of the tune which are on YouTube, but that just set the scene for the whole process and I think there's a shorthand that he and I have over email that takes a lot into consideration that I feel he thinks he knows is we don't have to say hmm. because we are on the same page hmm. or ass cheek as they say <laughs> in the case of, <laughs> the case of this, this music so I think there's a lot that hasn't been said, but it, it doesn't have to be said mm. because we understand each other. 
so far what you've produced has been i think around seven now seven seven unique and memorable compositions and i think you've both been in in talks about the, the actual soundtrack of it with with a couple of cool interesting names that have been heard flying around like abandon all hope was one of them <laughs> and beast is among us he's, he's great with his yeah. names um what 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 is it because this i've been working on it for about a year and a half now brett's brett's been a lot longer and the dlp gwyn for him it's been about five years and other mm-hmm. attached crew is there anything about working on no budget at all um in this film project or others that, that does that do you struggle to maintain your interest or does it struggle to motivate you creatively what does keep motivating you creatively well the process the creativity of it motivates me and i appreciate that especially in this day and age there are going to be moments where people aren't going to be able to be paid Hmm. for whatever reason um is that everyone's in the same boat that they're not being paid and i i i sort of have a a setup in my head that that the two don't interact Hmm. so i'm not doing the music for this in any way shape or form less than I would if I was being paid for it. I'm I'm giving the whole production exactly the same commitment and creativity that I would if I'd been commissioned to do it. But there are points at which you have to say, I'm going to do this for no money. And that's like the end of it. Hmm. You know, you ha- you put that in your back pocket and say, okay, especially if everyone else is doing it for no money. I mean, that's, that's, we're all in this together, as it were. And the the process shouldn't be any different. Hmm. And I think there's a freedom, and it sounds very glib and naive to say that, there's a freedom in not having to barter for money, yeah. your fee and all that sort of thing. So, well, I'd, you know, I need some more money now because, you know, I <laughs> used up the time that you got me for sort of thing. Would you would you encourage people? Because I know a lot of people personally, like students these days, um, they oftentimes miss out on potential opportunities because they they kind of see they, they want the monetary value there. They want to be paid for their time, mm-hmm. for their efforts, for their labor. Would would you, would you encourage people that if there are opportunities like this to to jump on them, whether there's money or not? Well, they have to. Yeah, they have to weigh up their own personal circumstances because obviously, if you've got a young family and a mortgage and all that mm. sort of thing um then you have to weigh these things up very carefully if there's i suppose there should be a good balance of jobs that you're doing in whatever realm where you're being paid for them mm. and jobs that are really heartfelt jobs that you do because you love the process mm. and you love what everyone's striving for I think that it's it's always it that's the difficult thing is to you can't sort of tell someone else what to do in this situation you've got mm. to feel it mm. and have a balance yeah. of the two things and it could be a balance between an actual day job which is not musical or not artistic in any way and then working the rest of the time on this thing that you love which feeds you feeds yeah. your soul creatively out of the compositions that you've worked on so far, has any stood out to you? Is there anything you like really enjoyed digging into and anything that you're really looking forward to for the future? I mean, Jack's second monologue, which was the thing that came out of uh, once I'd done the opening titles, um, 17 minutes long. Hmm. Now that, by any standards, is a long queue. <laughs> um, any film standards is a long queue. And it was interesting because it goes through so many different aspects of his character. 
Um, that, that was a challenge and I'm really pleased with the way that turned out. But doing the all the women involved in his life and still trying to keep them under the same umbrella as mm. the Jack's monologue and the opening titles, mm. but still giving them their own character. Yeah. I really enjoy doing the, each of those. Um, and I think his ex-English teacher I enjoyed doing. Yeah. And also his half-sister. Yeah. Um, but again, Brett sends me the visuals. And he gives me a, an email listing the things that he'd like to bring out mm. in here. And that that's such a great thing to be pointed in the right direction rather than having a blank canvas to start with. Mm. But as the production progresses, it's easier to to see where I've been and where I'm going and I know when we get to do Jack's third monologue which is the big one at mm. the end yeah. I know that I'll be drawing in all bits from what I'm working on now and so in a way it's it's really good that we've had the time and it's spread out and I've been able to sort of really think about where this is going so I've seen some roughs of, of where it's going and I have an idea musically of what's going to happen at the end but um it, it is great that this wasn't something that had to be done to a finished film over two months yeah because i think i think it's there's a much richer deeper um feel to the music for me yeah. anyway have you had much in world my... into features or is this a, is this a new world for you doing features uh this is the first feature that i've been involved with as a composer of the score um, a lot of other films have used pieces of my library music, mm. which have nothing really to do with me. They've just chosen these pieces of music and put them in. Mm. Um, so, And it's great being involved as the process happens, as you're filming it. And so I'm, I'm the, the one thing as a composer that I miss is the crew camaraderie mm. and the whole production company camaraderie i'm quite used to that now that it doesn't sort of bother me too much but i seem to I, i'm involved in it mm. albeit remotely. you've seen everything uh, i see yeah. i see the rehearsals i see the the discussions that lead up to the rehearsals i see the what you're about to do you're going to do jack's monologue mm. and i it, it's really nice having the nuts and bolts because i feel part of it and i feel able to respond to those things mm. musically when the, it's all put together so uh, it's it's the best of both worlds, really. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sort of tacked on at the end, but yeah. I'm involved um, in it. So it's yeah, it's good. I'm really enjoying it. Do you remember every time Brett sends his big emails out to say this is this is Andy's new piece of magic? Um, everybody always responds. I responded a, a couple yeah, of times. Yeah, it's lovely. Um, it's lovely to hear. And it's what's really nice is the way that it it has been from my involvement anyway. Um, so the the little snippet of music I did at the front, mm. or seven months ago, that sort of moved everyone to think, oh gosh, yeah, I can see this mm. working. Mm. And then, so at every point, it seems that different aspects of the production sort of got shot up, and they're all sort of yeah. vying for um, attention. And it's good. It's, I think it's really good. They all depend on each other, and it's that's really nice, nice feel, very cohesive. Yeah, sort of feel. yeah, it is. I think it's 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 good when you're working on a film like this at any level because it always is going to be, I guess, a family a family engagement. Um, yeah, I'm very lucky to have worked in several families like that. Ragdoll is a family like that. Mm. 
um, as you say, Abbey Road and the EMI were that sort of family again. And this is, and I, I do feel part of the family. I'm honoured to be part of the family. So just moving a bit forward, I saw some of the more recent stuff you've done. You're part of a, is it a folk pop band called Free Bucket Jones? Yeah. Could you tell us yeah. a bit more about that? Three Bucket Jones was formed in 2014 um, when three of us, three members met. We had no sort of link before that. We met at a, a publishing get-together uh, songwriting camp at Mono Valley Studios, which is in Monmouth. And um, we just hit it off and just said, if nothing else comes of this, we should form a band, which we did. <laughs> and we made two albums with that lineup and where there are just two of us left at the moment um we're making our fifth album and we've done some tours it's really good because like a lot of other things people are involved in doing so many different things it isn't when i was first in druid it's like it was druid against the world yeah that was it whereas now it's really great to bring in lots of different aspects of everyone's career and their sort of creativity um from different places and just team up um and in fact Gitka, the uh, other member of mm. three bucket jones has a choral background and that really comes in uh, she's a choir leader of mm. community choirs and again that that feeds into three bucket jones mm. but also um with um kirsty who you mentioned some yeah. time ago about being that she's Kirsty McGee is the link between Brett and me yeah Gittica Kirsty and I have formed uh, an online band called All the Bees mm. and we recorded an, uh, most of an album online over the pandemic and mm. um, we've never met I've never met Kirsty Gittica's never met Kirsty we have FaceTime from time to time but all of it's mainly done on sending stuff backwards and forwards yeah. Um, so again, it, that's great to have an outlet for another part of my creativity. Yeah, and I think that's just really important. And I would say for it to everyone, that's a, a good thing to have. Yeah, that it pushes pushes you in a place, pushes me in a in a place where um, I'm not pushed normally. Well, I did actually see um, no one can hear me. In the free book, oh, free yes. Jones. Yeah, that was a yeah. really interesting collaboration. How did that come about? The song, um, No One Can Hear Me, uh, we had a, a filmmaker who got in touch with us. Mm. And again, just we got talking and we said, have a go at this. So he did. Um, and it worked. Erin. And it, again, it worked really. He had a, a, a sort of story that came to him when he listened to the music and he tried to visualize that and put it into um, a video. Um, again, again, he sort of understood that idea of being in the world and you put stuff out there and nobody hears it. Mm. Nobody sees it. You know, you put your all into it and nobody seems to respond to it, um, which is what the song's about. I mean, we could probably chat all day, um, to be honest, but I think we've we've talked a lot and I think we've got to really come to a close um, yep. just on there. Um Anybody listening can hear Andy's fantastic soundtrack, hopefully by, by spring, if, if nobody dies on the Soothly Pike shoot, if n nobody does any backflips on the way down or on the way up, um, we shall see. But thank you for appearing, Andy. It's been great talking to you. It's been lovely, Jack. Thank you. Thank you. What, 
that's his end podcast five series of podcast signing out thank you